You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Our country uh, was founded, I guess I was just speaking about uh, freedoms that we have in this country, and uh, this week I was considering those freedoms, very thankful for them especially in the news as you hear and see all kinds of crazy things going on. It can be kind of one of those moments where you're very grateful for the place you find yourself in. But as we look back on our country, it's founded on several key principles that I think provide a nice little illustration for a few things I wanted to talk about today. In our country, our founding fathers uh, thought it wise to set up our country with a separation of powers. You've heard of that? Maybe you took civics class or history class. Uh, You're well aware of uh, three distinct branches of government that John Locke and Montesquieu and these different philosophers uh, developed and then our founding fathers developed into uh, the executive branch right, which is the presidential branch, and then uh, the legislative branch of government, there's lawmaking and Congress and such, and then the judicial branch with the judges and and the law keeping. And so uh, you have these three separate branches of government which divide the powers that uh, are present within our government. But you think for a moment of why did the founding fathers do this? Why did they separate these roles and offices in our, in our government? Well, I think because our, our founding fathers were students of history, right? They, they also were students of humanity. And uh, they saw the abuses that were brought on by themes of uh, the divine right of kings and where a human being can have a tendency to absolute power and to abuse that power over the people and over public. And uh, humans have a terrible track record of this throughout history. In the beginning of time, you can see realms of abuse of power, of dictatorships, of evil, of terrible atrocities. You look back on the greatest atrocities known to mankind, the Hitlers and the Stalins, the Maos and all of these things. These men or leaders or one sole authority that had everything go through them. They were the judge, jury, and executioner. They were the king. They were everything. And so we today in our nation, we seek to separate those powers. We put checks and balances in order to try to to protect against any one branch abusing the power over another. We attempt this. We're trying this. And this is the American experiment, as they call it, as we try to continue on this route. And this is not a message about America, but I want to think that through in your head, that kind of idea, because even throughout most of the Old Testament, when we look at different figures, uh, we see the Moses, uh, we see um, the King Davids and the Sauls and the Solomons, And if we think, even throughout the Israelite nation, we see often a a leader leading the people, and yet among that, we would see a separation of that power for the leader of, say, like a Moses, uh, led the people of God on behalf of God, and yet uh, the, the priesthood was a separate caste, it was a separate system, it was a separate order. And you would have Aaron and Moses, Moses leading, Aaron leading the worship, and kind of governing the tabernacle, You had a a Saul being the king of the nation and Samuel, uh, the high priest, or Levi as the high priest among that time and others. Uh, You you had these kinds of separations throughout the times. And and so, and even David is is asked that he's not to build the temple for he was a king and a man of war. Solomon later on is the one who goes through these things and all this such. It's this picture that I find fascinating, this Levitical priesthood, this, this kind of separation here between these two things where the people of God are led by a leader and a priest is separate and these kinds of things are separated. And yet, in this passage, in Hebrews 7, we're introduced to a figure 
The preacher of Hebrews has been building into this concept as well as he's introducing to us a, a key figure in the story of Israel that in a very unique and mysterious way uh, kind of fills both of those things at once. Instead of a separation of the two, this person of Melchizedek seems to be both at the same time, both a king and a priest, both the president of the prime minister and uh, the judicial side of things all in one. It's a very unique figure. He blends the two roles, the two branches of government, if you would, in a powerful way, and yet in an incomplete way for his whole reason of bringing this key figure into our, in our understanding today from Hebrews 7 is to lead us to the one key figure in all of history, the man Jesus Christ, that becomes the sole prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who, who completes all of the roles, completes and finishes everything that we need. It is all found in the key to our understanding, the one person who makes and saves the the world who is our priest and our mediator, who is our king and our leader, and who is our savior, is the person of Jesus Christ. So everything we talk about today, every, uh, every piece of history that we're gonna look into in Genesis is gonna lead us to be looking at the one key figure of Jesus Christ who blends all the branches of government, <laughs> who blends all the authority into one figure, the person of Jesus Christ, which is the whole book of Hebrews is leading us to look up and to look at Jesus to look at Jesus. And we do that through the lens of Melchizedek today. And I know some of you have no idea who Melchizedek is, and so we're gonna try to work through that today and figure out what's going on. But before we go any further, I want us to remind us, ourselves of a few things that the uh, preacher of Hebrews has been telling us and has warned us even leading up into this point. Maybe some of you have been here and you remember. If you didn't, that's okay. But in, in back in, in Hebrews chapter four and five, He's reminding us that, that he's, uh, he's reminding us of some very deep things, some very uh, deep doctrinal teachings, and yet he's saying to us to be careful to listen because we don't want to be like those who are dull of hearing and to not think and to not listen to the things of God. And when it becomes difficult, we just fall away and we quit. So he says in Hebrews 5.11, about this, having just spoken about Melchizedek, Hebrews 5.11, about this we have much to say. And then he says, it is hard to explain. And I like that, because as a preacher sometimes I feel like, you know what, some things are a little bit hard to explain, right? He says it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. And so today, collectively, I want us to open our ears, I want us to open our hearts, and to also open our minds to think deeply about the things of God. Not every message is simple to understand and yet I find that when we press into maybe the more complicated things of scripture, I find there's a great deep reward for you in understanding a greater depth of God, a greater depth of his righteousness and justification, what he's done for you in the gospel that leads you to a greater appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think through the lens of Melchizedek, on the foresight, on the front, it can be a little complicated and it can be deep, but I think as we press into it, if we allow ourselves to hear the word of God and to press in, the Holy Spirit will illuminate you to understand, both through your head and in your heart. For in, I, I, I find a holistic understanding of the scripture, that it is both gaining in the knowledge of God, but allowing that knowledge to sink deeply and to take root into our hearts and to transform our living. This is not just merely an intellectual exercise, but this is not just merely an aspect where we disengage the mind as well. It's a duality of these two things coming together that God has given us a mind to glorify God 
and to praise him with our mind and with our soul and with our spirit, with our heart. We engage both as we read. And so I guess as a preacher today, knowing that this passage can be somewhat complicated, I'm asking you to kind of press in with me today. To, to open up our ears and our, ears and our hearts and, our, and allow our head to be engaged and allow our heart to hear what God is teaching us from these arguments. For as we, before we jump into the passage, I just want to give you this brief overview, this, this idea that Melchizedek, this idea of this logic that the author is about to present to us, that he's presenting to us as he's been doing from the very beginning of, of Hebrews, the lesser to greater. He often starts with a, this is a, a, an amazing idea, but look at how Jesus is even better than that. He starts with a lesser argument building to the greater argument. Uh, Jesus is superior than Moses. He's superior than the angels. He's superior than uh, all of these things that he's been leading. And here, he's a superior priest. He's a superior sacrifice. And in fact, in Jesus, all of the things find its fulfillment. And so he introduces us to a character to help give us a lesser to greater argument and he introduces this person of Melchizedek. A king of Salem, a king or a priest of the most high God, a king priest. That's why today the message is entitled Melchizedek and the royal priesthood. We have royal as king and priesthood as the mediator here. And in Genesis 14, which we'll look at later, is this character that kind of bursts onto the scene and is a priest of the most high God and he blesses the person of Abraham. And it's in this person that we find an incredibly intriguing argument and understanding of who Jesus is. And we find it, I find it amazing at how we unite all the authority of the two areas of need that we have as a people of God, that we need a king to lead us and we need a priest to mediate on behalf of, who, of our sin. And we find that Jesus does both. And so he introduces this idea. I want you to look at Hebrews 6, verse 19. And then we're gonna read right into Hebrews chapter seven. I'm gonna read a a little bit lengthier of a portion here today. I I might keep on going here a little bit, but uh, we're gonna kind of do some of the bigger ideas from today's message as, as far as we can. But in Hebrews 6, verse 19, this is from last week, in fact. We ended with this passage, the sure, steadfast anger. All right, so in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 19, it says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You remember that? This is hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus, as a high priest, goes into the most holy place and he enters behind the curtain like an anchor that's tossed into the water and it is a sure, and th- a sure thing that holds fast, right? And then verse 20, where Jesus, having gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes in, in chapter seven, and this is actually what, again, he's been reminding us that he wanted to go deeper into, but he was worried and not sure if you were ready for it. So he takes a whole chapter to, to make sure they're ready, and then he goes into chapter seven and says, okay, here, let's go a little deeper under this guy of Melchizedek. So in seven, verse one, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth, a part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. And then he is king of Salem. That was his role there. And then he was king of peace. Salem, Shalem means 
peace. Verse three, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor ends of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. And then verse four, he's telling us to look, okay? See, see, do you see that? Verse four, see, look how great this man was to whom Abraham owes everything really in a sense, right? So he, look at Abraham, look at Melchizedek, look at him. See how great a man through to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers. Though they were also descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them, meaning Melchizedek wasn't a Levite, he wasn't an Israelite, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed Abraham or him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's just keep reading and then we'll, we'll get into it. Verse 11 says, now if perfection or completion, you could say, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one after the order of Aaron? Meaning if the Levitical priesthood could have solved all our problems, why aren't we just still there? Why would Jesus ever need to come? Why would any of this need to be? Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one to whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from whom no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, meaning that he was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests Verse 15, this uh, becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who was becoming a priest on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life, meaning Jesus never dies, he's eternal. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, the law, because of its weakness and its uselessness. But verse 19 is key. For the law made nothing perfect or complete, but on the other hand, a better hope. Catch that. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And verse 22, which we'll get into next week, says, and this makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant, a better hope, a better priest, a better sacrifice, all of those things. So what is a priest to you? When you think of a priest, what comes into your mind? What image comes into your mind when I talk about priesthood or when I say a priest? And and if you can imagine yourself being a Hebrew, being an Israelite, growing up in the culture and the customs, what would it have meant, meant to them to say that someone was a priest and to say someone was a high priest? What would have gone through their mind? What could it mean to them that Melchizedek was better or superior than Abraham and a superior than the Levitical priesthood? And what could it have meant to them to think through that that saying and alluding as the author does that Jesus is the best, greatest high priest that we've ever seen and we will ever see? The writer of Hebrews goes pretty deep here and he says that this guy, this Melchizedek who 
foreshadows the person of Jesus. This is the greatest. He is both king and priest. He fits into this royal priesthood. A king priest who has no genealogy or in a sense he has no meaning mentions of his father or mother. We don't know what genealogy he comes from. We don't know what tribe he comes from except for the fact that he's not an Israelite. He just appears on the scene and he blesses Abram having no connection to the people of God or the people of promise. So in fact, this king priest isn't even an Israelite, yet he blesses Abraham on behalf of Yahweh, God, and yet therefore he's saying this man has authority. This man is a priest, and we need a priest. In in the word for priest in the Latin, it, it is the word pontifex. Maybe you've heard of that through the Catholic side of things, but the word pontifex means means bridge builder. Jesus as our high priest or a priest in a sense of the Levitical priesthood, they operated as the builder of bridges mediating between God and man, a spiritual bridge builder. And the Levitical priest that we read about in the Old Testament, the whole book of Leviticus, I know many of you, it's your favorite book in the Bible, uh, you, you just love reading through Leviticus. It, it was like a law code for the Levitical priests, for a Levite, for a priest that operated in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Leviticus was in a very important book. And yet all of the Levitical priests, all of the priests that have ever come in the past and have come today, all of them have the same problem. They all have the same flaws. The fact that they're flawed. They're human beings. Yes, they can sympathize with us as they represent a bridge between us, but they pose the same problem that Jesus was the only one to overcome. The fact that they were all beset with weaknesses, and yet Jesus, though he was beset with weakness, overcame them, yet he did it without sin because, frankly, all of the priests were sinners. They all, in fact, Leviticus 16 details all of the instructions that Aaron or the high priest had to go through on the day of atonement before they were to make atonement for the sins on behalf of the whole nation. They had to make atonement for their own sins and for their own family before they would ever face the Holy of Holies or making uh, atonement for the sins of the people. You could think of it, one commentator said it like this. They were like, basically, it's like you're showing up to court Uh, You're charged with a crime that could put you in prison, maybe life in prison. You have a lawyer, and you show up to court, and that lawyer informs you that he's also being charged with the exact same crime that you're being charged with. (laughs) And now you're questioning whether you should have hired that lawyer at all in this first place, right? Both of you are on trial. You're like, this doesn't seem to make sense. This is how it's supposed to work. Your priest that's representing you is on trial for the same crime that you've committed. Hebrews 5 speaks about this idea. We've already spoken about it weeks before, but it says in Hebrews 5, verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. These high priests that come into the role. And then every high priest has the same issue as well. These high priests that come and, and, and work in the Old Testament, and as, as we're talking about this Levitical priest, they have another problem, and that is that they die. They all die. And a new priest has to take, come into place. And yet this passage in Hebrews 7 alludes later on that Jesus holds a perpetual priesthood. He never dies. He is forever alive. So they die and they are sinners and they operate in this this hope for something better to come. The whole Old Testament and the law and the Levitical priesthood was there to meant to foreshadow and to lead us to see our need for a Savior and a Messiah who would complete all that was left incomplete. 
John MacArthur says it this way. He says, so in the book of Hebrews, the writer wants to prove to us that there's a greater high priest than any Jewish one, that there's a greater priest than any Hebrew priest, one who doesn't need to make atonement for his own sins. The problem with the Jewish priesthood was that they were so inadequate that what they did today wasn't worth anything tomorrow. They had to do it over and over again. There wasn't any final satisfaction and completion. There was no, it is finished. Every time a man sinned, he had to go all the way over there and do it all over again. The day of atonement each year and then, and then he'd sin again and over then he'd have to do it again and constantly going on. The priests never ceased in their work. They were bathed in blood, incessantly offering sacrifices. And so the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews shows that what we need is a new and better priesthood, a new and better sacrifice, and points out to us that both of those are realized in Jesus Christ who himself is a better sacrifice and a better priest. And in the famous song that I love so much, Is He Worthy, in Revelation 5.10, that sings the words, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on this earth. A kingdom and priests. And so we see in this person of Melchizedek that these come to kind of take shape And so before all these points that he's making regarding Jesus as the great high priest and Jesus as far superior to any Levitical high priest, the preacher of Hebrews uses a mysterious character, a mysterious one. And I say mysterious because we don't know a ton about him. This person of Melchizedek, he's mentioned three times in the whole Bible. Once in Genesis 14 and in one verse in Psalm 110 verse 4. And then in multiple places here in Hebrews, but in particular, Hebrews 7, and in Hebrews 5 and 6, he's mentioned once or twice, but in particular, there's almost an entire chapter dedicated to this person of Melchizedek. Otherwise, we have maybe a handful, four, five, six verses on in the whole rest of Scripture. (laughs) So it's a curious figure. He's a mysterious figure. And yet, outside of the Bible, if you were to look and study in extra-biblical literature, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, they found that Melchizedek was written about in kind of the folklore and some of these other writings outside of the Bible. Melchizedek had quite a few things dedicated and written into and about him. And so he had become almost like a, somewhat of a mythological hero in the eyes of some of the, uh, the Jewish people at that time. So I think here the writer or the preacher here of Hebrews is using kind of the, the prestige and the notoriety of Melchizedek among that time to make an example, to make an illustration, to describe to them that if you think Melchizedek is such a big deal, if you think the order and the priesthood of Melchizedek is such a big deal, take a look at Jesus Christ and what he does for you. If you think Moses was such an amazing leader and you think he was so incredible, take a look at how Jesus and and through Joshua, through Moses, they led us to a rest, but Jesus leads us to a far greater Sabbath rest than they could ever provide. You think all, and you see how he constantly does that. The high priest in the Old Testament was to be valued and revered. It was a very special space. And yet, now Jesus is far greater than all of those things. Levitical priesthood, yes, was was impressive. But do you really want to go back to that, he's saying? You want to fall away from the things that you've understood now and you want to go back into the way things were? No, 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 no. A change is needed, he says. And that change comes through Jesus Christ. This is the whole argument that he's been building into this time. So before we jump into kind of some of that argument there, I want us to look way back. Go back with me into Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14. 
Genesis 14 gives us the context of who Melchizedek is. Gives us a little bit of the background understanding. Kind of you could say if you're a history buff, some of the history of who Melchizedek is where, he, where we first uh, see him mentioned in the scripture. We find this amazing chapter of Genesis 14. And again, while you're turning there, while you're finding it, I know it'll be on the screen as well, Genesis 14. We're probably gonna start reading verse eight. Uh, but, but in Genesis 14, we, we find that in the Old Testament, when we read the Old Testament, we'll, we'll come upon figures and different motifs throughout the Old Testament that are all pointing us to Christ. Uh, a theological study or discipline that you go through when you read the Old Testament, this is called, uh, when, when you do this, this is called typology, or biblical typology, which is studying different types of Christ. Does that make sense? Types of Christ. So actually the word type, the Greek word tupos is this word to print or to impress or to imprint something. Uh, Kind of a model or an impression on something that we then get a sense of the original. So uh, types of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, like the Joshua's or the, the David, the king, the type. He was not the final king, the king of kings, but he was a king that gives us understanding as to the final Jesus, the king of all Uh, this Melchizedek figure, uh, gives us a a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. And so by understanding Melchizedek, we get a better understanding of Jesus Christ. When you read through the Old Testament, we actually talked about this in our Long Story Short series a few, uh, a year ago, probably now at this point really. Uh, But as we read through the Old Testament, we're constantly coming upon different types of Christ that shed light onto our understanding of the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, one example could even be a type of Christ. You, you could even say like the bronze serpent and they were being bit by snakes and judged. They, they had a bronze serpent set up on a pole. They were to look at it and they would find healing. This is a picture of what it would be like for the cross of Jesus Christ to go to that, to look to that and find life, right? And so the sacrificial system was a type of Christ leading us to our need for a blood sacrifice. Uh, the Levitical priests were types of Christ all leading us to understand that we need a final and a better one. And so in Hebrews chapter, uh, sorry, in Genesis chapter 14, we read about this extraordinary story. In fact, uh, I was listening to one, they were like, why, why has a movie not been made about this yet, you know? Uh, it's one of those things where you can almost see, see this epic battle scene where you, where you get the story of, uh, of four kings versus five kings. In fact, in, I think it is in... Um, In uh, the beginning it says in verse two that these kings made war with one another. In the valley of Siddim, the salt sea near the Dead Sea is where they rebelled and there was these kings from the north versus the kings from the south. Four northern kings allied together versus in a grand, grand battle versus the five allied southern kings of Sodom. And they were all battling over one thing, territory and money. And you're like, Nothing's changed, right? Taxes, in fact, one of these areas as well. These things have never changed. They're still going on today. And uh, this is exactly the same things they're fighting over then. And it mentions the story of, of this thing going on. So let me just read some of it and we'll see for sake of time how much we get through. But in verse eight, it says, then the king of Sodom, this is before the Sodom and Gomorrah here, but the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim where Carol uh, Delamer, king of Elam, t 
Tidal, king of Goim, and Aphrael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. This grand battle. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them and the rest into the hill country. And the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. See that? They take the possessions and all their provisions and went their way. And then here's the key. Verse 12, they also took Lot. You guys remember him? The son of Abraham's brother who was dwelling in Sodom at that time. Because remember previously, Lot said, I'm gonna head over that direction. And Abraham said, I'm gonna head in the opposite way. Then, verse 13, and the one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner. These were allies of Abraham. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth, it's pretty epic here, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. They're in the southern area of Israel. They're going all the way down, which is the northern part. Then he divided his forces against them by night. I mean, again, how cool is this? He divides his forces into two groups at nighttime, does a nighttime raid. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, which is north of Damascus. That's like modern Syria. He keeps going north. He is extensive. And at that time, uh, Abraham, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot and his possessions and the women and the people. All right, so he's done all of that work. And as he comes back from the way tippity-top north of Israel, he comes all the way back down past the Jordan near the Dead Sea where he happens upon this situation in verse 17. And after his return and his defeat from Carolandomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is the King's Valley. That's the King's Valley right near Jerusalem, even modern Jerusalem today. And Melchizedek, here it is, verse 18. King of Salem brought out, which is fascinating, bread and wine. And then he, being a priest of God Most High, or God Elyon, and he blessed him and said, here's the blessing that Melchizedek places on Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abraham or Abram gave him a tenth of everything so Abram then returns and tithes a tenth of everything he has back to Melchizedek the king of Salem and the king of Sodom's not too happy about this said to Abram give me the persons that's what Sodom says he doesn't say thank you it is give me what I want and you Abram why don't you take the goods for yourself don't give it back. Don't worry about it. Just take it for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. He knows right from the back, I ain't touching this king of Sodom guy. You know, this, he is bad news, right? And eventually we know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah in the future. But in verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. All right, so what's going on here? It's epic battle, all this story that's going on. They come back. Melchizedek comes out in the king's valley and he presents him with a blessing. This unique person, King of Salem. Salem is a shortened term for Jerusalem. Okay, so this is pre-Jerusalem, pre-David, pre-Moses. All of that, pre-Canaanite Jerusalem. 
this king of Salem, king of Shalem, Jerusalem, brings out bread and wine. He blesses Abram on behalf of El Elyon, God most high, possessor of everything. Again, the term Yahweh was not known at this point, right? God has not revealed himself in Yahweh form yet. That's later on in Exodus. So he, the word Yahweh would not have been used, but here in form of, of God Elyon, this, this God most high. Abram chooses to tithe and return to Melchizedek and as a return God blesses Abram through Melchizedek. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And what we have is this incredible motif, this storyline of, of Sodom versus Salem. Sodom and selfishness and pride versus Salem and peace and righteousness and justice. These two warring kings, you could say. This one king who's been all about his taxes, possessions, and he goes to war over it versus another king who comes out to bless those who are among him, Melchizedek. This extraordinary contrast that Melchizedek forming in this way as a king priest comes out, blesses, but in a way that he is a king of peace. A priest mediating the blessing of Abraham on behalf of God for his righteousness, his peace brings blessing to the whole world, Abraham will one day. For in some way, Jesus is this king of righteousness and the king of peace. And in God's kingdom through Jesus, he will bring blessing and in his place, he will bring life to all who live in this place. Lived under this righteous judgment and peaceful relationship, we only have that through Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians five seven. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus will one day, in one way, in a sense, makes Melchizedek. This will one day who makes Melchizedek a mysterious priest in the city of Salem will, in, in one day, become this place of Jerusalem, where Jesus Himself will go outside the city in that very location near the King's Valley. Will take place as a priest, as a king. He will ride a donkey into the into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then he will head and ascend to the, the, the hill of Golgotha and he will take the cross, the Roman cross. He will be killed and crucified, buried and risen again and he will be king of kings and priest most high, of God most high, this high priest. And so as we look at that kind of background of the storyline that's going on, for some reason it seems like it's almost just a few verses and then, then we move on and we don't hear about Melchizedek again until Psalm 110 and we don't hear about him again till Hebrews chapter seven. So let's book, look back at Hebrews and run through some of these ideas as we close. As we look at Hebrews, we're unpacking some of the arguments that Jesus is better high priest. He is, a, he is our priest king. And yet we look at it through Melchizedek. Melchizedek, this king priest that we just read about, verses one and two of Hebrews seven tell us about him, gives like a summarized version that Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham returning from slaughter. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace. So he is the king priest. He's this one that represents this unique order of priesthood. And then, then in number two, this idea in verse three is brought out that he is without father or mother or genealogy. So this is a kind of the mysterious figure. Was he just like a pre-incarnate Christ or was he just a human being? And I, I tend to believe that he was a person who is not a pre-incarnate Christ, but he is a type of Christ. 
And so as we look at him, he is without father or mother or genealogy. This is an argument of silence that we don't know of anything about Melchizedek's background, where he came from, and we don't know when he died. We just know that he was, he existed in this time. And so what the author is doing is that like Melchizedek, we don't know his past or his future. Like Jesus, we don't know, in a sense, he had no beginning and no end. He has always been. He is eternal and he always will be. So his priesthood doesn't end when one dies like a Levitical priest would pass away and another one would need to take up the mantle. Jesus has always been and will always be our priest. And yet Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi. To be a Levitical priest in the Old Testament, you can just like sign up to be a priest. Like, hey, I feel like this is what I wanna do with my life. (laughs) You were born into it. The tribe of Levi. It was not apportioned land. The other tribes would actually tithe toward the priests so that they could operate in their way and in their manner to serve and uh, mediate as priests in the temple or in the tabernacle. So the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament was very important. And yet this other one is, is so different. And so, so what we see is that this, is, uh, this person of Melchizedek, it then goes on in this passage. It says, he is a priest forever resembling the son of God, he never dies. He lives and is eternal. And yet Melchizedek is superior to Abraham for he blesses Abraham. Jesus the superior blesses the inferior. And we see this through the blessing and the tithe, which is so important because this whole aspect of tithing to someone. And so uh, in one sense, we're all tithing, he says to Melchizedek as a superior one for it says that Levi, still in the loins of Abraham, his um, ancestor, in one sense, tithes to Melchizedek as well. So Abraham being the father of the entire Israelite nation owes honor and homage to Melchizedek. And like, in like manner, all of us who come from that, we are all sons of Abraham. We tithe not to Melchizedek, but to Jesus, for he is our high priest. We all owe him all that we have. And so what's needed is this fact that, the, that the, this, this is an inferior way of going about. This is not the end, this Levitical priesthood, this priest that is a sinner and dies in the same manner. There is a different priesthood. There is a change that is needed. Look at verse 11. Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now, if completion or perfection is the word had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? What what need would we have for Jesus to come if the Levitical priest could have met all that we needed? Just follow the law and you'll get there. Verse 12 says, for when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Saying there is a change that is needed. A change is needed. We need a better one, a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better mediator. Not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. And that person is Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Verse 15, it becomes more evident when another priest arises after the likeness of Melchizedek. He is not Melchizedek, he is like it in a sense. And so, he is, an, he is after forever after the order of Melchizedek. A change is needed. For one, as it says in verse 18, for on one hand, you see this? For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside. The law, the Levitical priesthood, sacrifices made in the temple, on the temple mount, over and over and over and over. That in its weakness and uselessness has now been set aside. Why? Though God instituted all of that, not because it was, 
not good enough, but in a sense, that's what God instituted, but in a sense, now Jesus has fulfilled all of it. Now what we have is better. Why would we go back to what was? That was there as a schoolmaster, as a teacher, to tell us and to teach us about what we need, who is the one to come. It teaches us the law and the Levitical priesthood. It foreshadows as types of Christ that we need a sacrifice. We need a savior. And that one who would atone for our sins is met in the person of Jesus. So it says in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing complete. In other places, the law was your schoolmaster teaching about your need for a savior. It says in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, right, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. On the one hand, we were here. On the other hand, which is far better, we are now here. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And before I get into that passage, you want us to just describe all that we just talked about. Barclay gives this wonderful explanation that Jesus is the high priest. We don't need other high priests or people after the order of Melchizedek. We don't need any of that, for Jesus fulfills it all. Jesus is the high priest whose priesthood depends not on any genealogy, not on any ancestry.com that allows you to get into the Levitical priesthood. No, we don't need any of that, but on himself alone. Jesus is our high priest based on who he is. He is the son of God. Number two, Jesus is the high priest who lives forever. He never dies. He is eternal Jesus doesn't need to then also, he is a high priest who doesn't need to make atonement for his own sin for he himself is sinless and he, needs to, he doesn't need to offer any sacrifice for his own sin. He is the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice himself and Jesus in that like manner as the high priest who an offering of himself made a perfect sacrifice once and for all and opened the way to God. No more sacrifice may be made. And I would add also, he royally is the king, establishing a kingdom in which righteousness and peace would exist based on his priestly status to mediate a relationship with God, that now we step into that kingdom and live freely in righteousness and in peace, the king of Salem. This is the better hope. Yet how is this hope better? You know, you think about that in verse 19 as we close. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. I mean, you can think about it in the Old Testament and all the sacrifices that were made. What kind of hope is it for a human sinner to represent you before God holy on high? What good is it for them to make sacrifice upon sacrifice, temporary atonements for our sin? What hope is that unless that hope is leading us to a better one, a better hope that completes and finishes all that we need and all that we lack in Christ, uh, outside of Christ? The law, our schoolmaster teaching us to hope for the one who would fulfill the law, the one who would pay the price, the one who would complete what was left undone. Jesus, our better hope, comes and fills all the shadows with substance. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How is it that we can say that? Because of Jesus' righteousness, we are now at peace with God. The king of righteousness and the king of peace steps into our lives and allows us to dwell with God, to uh, be near to God, united together 
It affords us a closeness and nearness to God most high that we could have never experienced outside of Jesus as our priest and sacrifice. Romans 5 gives, in, uh, gives this understanding. As we close, if you, if you would, you can turn to Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. And I know we've talked about a lot of really deep things, challenging things, and some of this is gonna take more study on your own, and I hope that challenges you to look in and the connections between this. And I, I want you to go into that even in your small groups and other places this week and start studying into this in a deeper way than we have time for this morning. But I think as we summarize the better hope, I wanna leave us with Romans 5, 1 and 2. This passage, I think, speaks a lot of clarity into what it is that we receive through Jesus Christ as our high priest as we operate uh, giving him worship and glory, as we serve him and as we trust and put our faith in him. It says this, Romans five verse one, Paul gives explanation on these ideas we've talked about this morning. Therefore, therefore, it's hard to start there, right? Because he had just talked about delivered us up for trespasses, raised to our justification. Jesus raised to justify us, right? In, In chapter five verse one, therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, I love this, it says we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope, hope of the glory of God. Jesus, your high priest, atoning for your sins even in this very moment. He is not a priest that stands daily making sacrifice upon sacrifice, but a priest who has made one eternal sacrifice, as Hebrews says, once for all, and now sits at the right hand of God. His work is finished. He sits down. Jesus is our peace the king of righteousness, for we do not have peace apart from righteousness. It is our sin that has broken that in which, is, in which we need a bridge builder to bridge that gap and mediate our, our, our un, we are not reconciled with God. That relationship is broken. It is Jesus who now reconciles, builds that bridge for us to have access, as it says, to God. There was a veil between us and the Holy of Holies. Jesus died, that veil is torn. There is now access for you to talk to God and for him to listen to you. It is for you to have relationship with God because of this extraordinary Melchizedekian kind of king priest, the man Jesus Christ, the son of God, sent by God to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. (laughs) It's through this Jesus Christ that by our faith, in him and our hope that we do not recognize and maybe receive all of the promises as of yet right now. Our hope, like an anchor thrown into the water, is sure and steadfast and we will hold on to that and in like manner, Jesus will hold us fast and we will not be let go. It's in that hope and in that faith, in the person of Jesus Christ, the key of understanding all of the Bible that we can rejoice and and sing and praise God because we have hope of the glory of God that is yet to come. Through the person of Jesus Christ, we have peace. And in a moment, we're gonna sing a new song. 
if the sound system continues to work. <laughs> We're gonna sing a new song called He Will Hold Me Fast. A very simple song. You'll be able to catch on really easily. And, and just the simple phrase that I actually quoted it in last week's message, but it says, He will hold me fast. There's a line in there, yet his promises will last. He will keep his promise. He is our priest forever. He is the one atoning for all that we have and all that we will do, our past, present, future sin. All of it is atoned for by the person of Jesus Christ. We trust and we walk by faith in him and we know he will not let you go. He will hold you fast. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for even the depth of scripture that leads us to places, God, that we don't fully understand and yet we know your spirit will intercede for our lack of understanding. We know your spirit will help us and illuminate the the scripture for us to grow in. Lord, transform us today as we try to attempt to walk in the way that you shall lead us to go. Father, we are walking by faith. Today, we are trusting you and in your promises. God, we know that our sin breaks that relationship, but because of all that you have done, you have restored what was previously broken. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for being our priest, for being our sacrifice, for being our savior. We thank you, God, for these truths, and we ask, God, that you'd be glorified today and in the service and the things to come. In Jesus' name, amen.